You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, uh, so we are working our way through a book of the Bible this spring. We are in Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's actually been, um, I don't know, three or so weeks since we've been in the text. So I wanna just do a bit of recapping for you at the beginning and, and just sort of framing what's happening uh, this morning and Sunday to Sunday as we work through this text. Um, why are we doing this series this way? That's one of the things I would just wanna answer quickly. Um, let me give you two reasons why we as a church are working through the book of Philippians verse by verse. Uh, reason number one is this, because we want to commend the truth of this book to you. We wanna commend the truth of this book to you. The, the scriptures, the Christian scriptures Paul says, are profitable for us. They are useful for us. They train us in righteousness. We're, we're anchored by the promises of God uh, in, in the scriptures. We are convicted of our sin as we sit with the word of God and, and the sword of the spirit sort of pierces our hearts and, and exposes our motives and does all of those things. The, the word of God promises to do that for us. We meet Jesus in the pages of scripture and we come alive at the sight of him. Like God has revealed himself to his people and he's done that in a book. So we wanna to get to know the God who's revealed himself in the scripture. So we are commending to you in our study through this book, we're commending to you the truth of this book. Know it, value it, treasure it. But we're not doing just that. We, we, we're commending also this morning the approach we're taking to see the truth of this book, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? The Bible was not written like the Quran. The Bible wasn't written like that. It wasn't formatted like that. It's not structured like that book. It's not written like a book of Chinese proverbs. It's not even written like a Christian devotional. It's, it, it is a book that is telling a bunch of stories and histories and poetry and, and prophecy. And all of those books, those 66 books are put together in one book. And that book is telling one story, one narrative throughout the whole scope of all 66 of those books. And it's driving home one point, one agenda throughout all of it. And that agenda is helping us see God's mission to rescue his people through a man, the God-man Christ Jesus. That is what's happening over the scope of all of these 66 books. And so as we read, we, ha we have to read with that in mind. It's telling us the most important thing in the universe and it's telling us over the scope of this book. And so to approach this book like, say, a devotional guide, where, you, where you, you just grab, you know, one or two verses randomly throughout the, you know, you do that ancient Bible flip open finger down method. You know the one, you do it, come on. You flip down, right, and you find it and then that's your verse for the day, like that thing. That's not sinful, it's just not as profitable for your joy in God as how the book is laid out for you. It would be better, and the way we were commending, what we're commending to you this morning, it would be better for you rather to sit with not just individual verses, but with books 
of the Bible because the Bible is written in books. So we're commending that approach to you. Make it a normal habit of yours to read books of the Bible, not just verses from the Bible. You got that? Not, so it's not wrong to do that. It's just for you to see all the gold that's there, it would make sense for you to read it as a whole. You feel me? So we read books and that's one of the reasons we're working through a book from start to finish. And I promise you, you'll be so much more enriched by doing it that way. And the same is true this morning, by the way. Like what we're doing this morning in this sermon, it would be, a, it would be very easy for us to hear sermons like, uh, like this one this morning and think of them as sort of isolated incidents, right? Like, like Paul wrote 20 little homilies, 20 little sermonettes and bound them up in a letter and then he sent it off to Philippi. But that's not what Paul did, right? Paul is writing a thing to a group of people. It's Paul communicating over four chapters an, an idea or several ideas that he's working out that the Holy Spirit is carrying him along and, and helping him communicate this truth to a certain group of people in a certain place and time, in a certain context with certain social structures and religious norms around them. Like it's, it's written like that. And so it would be crazy for us to just come this morning and think that, oh, this is like a little individual thing that I'm going to take and then next week will be an individual thing. No, they're connected. What Rodney preached on last time we were in Philippians has something to say about what we're seeing this time in Philippians. And what we're seeing this time in the text matters next time we get in the text. It's all connected. And so I just want you to be mindful of that as we're working through the scripture this morning to think of it as a whole, as something part of a whole and not just this little moment in itself. Okay, so in light of that, in light of that, let me do a bit of recapping since we've been out of it for a few weeks so that you can recall the context of this letter. Okay, so uh, this is the letter from Paul to the Philippian church and uh, Philippi uh, was a leading city, Acts says, a leading city of Macedonia. It was a uh, Roman colony in, in the uh, area of Macedonia. And it was, sort of a, it was sort of like a retirement spot for war veterans of the day. So, so former Roman war veterans would, would wind up in this, uh, this city of Philippi. So it was a very patriotic town very committed to sort of like the, the Roman empire, the Roman way of thinking. It was that sort of thing. And Philippi, the church in Philippians, it was actually the first church, the very first church that Paul founded in Europe. Did you know that? First church that Paul founded in Europe was this one, the church at Philippi. And this church was founded sort of on the back of persecution, and we talked about that early on when we got into the book. Uh, if you remember, Acts 16 is our first look at Philippians. And what's happening? Paul rolls into town for the first time with his crew and uh, he begins sharing the gospel and Lydia gets saved and then he casts a demon out of this one girl and her, her uh, handlers are really upset because now she can't profit them anymore. So they cause a riot. They get Paul beaten up real bad and thrown in prison. And so now he's in jail. You get that amazing Philippian jailer moment where the guy goes to kill himself. Paul stops him. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That whole moment goes down. The Philippian jailer gets saved. The, so the church is founded in the context of and on the back of suffering. 
and persecution and abuse and battery and wrongful imprisonment. Like that's the, that's the context that these people became Christians in. So it's helpful to know that as we continue working through this book. And, and Paul's writing this church a letter, this church that was founded by him a letter. And it's a missionary support letter. And that's what we would call it anyways these days. This is, this is Paul writing to a group of people who take care of him. Right? They provide him money and resources. They send some of their own crew to help him out. And he's writing them uh, an update letter. And he's also writing them a letter of encouragement and, and to challenge them and grow their faith. Like he's doing that sort of thing. And he loves this church. Remember, we, ta- we talked about that. Like, like, I don't know if you're allowed to be a church planner and have favorite churches that you planted, but this is Paul's favorite church. Like this is, these are his people. He loves these guys. It's all throughout the letter. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Remember that, that, that Greek word, splagnon, affection, which means intestines, that I love you literally from my gut. That's what Paul's saying to these guys. I love you, I love you. It's written all throughout this letter. And he's, as he's writing this loving letter to them, He's just wanting them to catch the vision for what it looks like to be invested in the work of Christ in the world. And and there's this theme that keeps coming up over and over, and we're even gonna see it today. It's this theme of joy, right? Joy is used so often in this book. Um, Paul is calling them to joy as they trust Jesus, as they get about the work of serving Jesus and entering into his suffering. And that, all of that, brings us to this point in the letter. That was just the introduction to the sermon. Paul is uh, continuing his exhortation and his appeal to them to walk worthy of the gospel to which they've been called. He's continuing that and and, and we arrive here in verse one of chapter two. So if you have a Bible, get it out on your left. We're gonna be in the text looking at it. Chapter two, verse one, and he begins by saying this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Let's stop right there. Uh, Paul's about to make a request of them, right? So he's, he's setting up that request. And I, and I just want you to notice how meekly he comes at these guys, right? He comes soft. He, look, at, look at how Paul does this. We talked in chapter one about how dear they were to him. And this is the posture that he comes. They're, they're dear to him. He's coming soft and kindly to him. He's appealing to them and entreating them instead of just pointing the, the sort of commanding finger at him. He's coming at them like a father. And he doesn't have to do this, right? Because he's, he's Paul. He's, he's the man. He's the apostle Paul, like of Jesus Christ, like that Guy and he and he could have played the apostle card here, right? But he doesn't. And there's other books in the Bible where he very much does, but that's not the moment here. That's not the people that he's dealing with here. Don't need that. He knows the people that he's pastoring here, and these are soft-hearted people. And I think it's just important for us to have a category for this, for interactions, for for sharing truth, for all of that. That soft people should receive soft treatment. Soft people get soft words. These are not a a stubborn, obstinate, hard-hearted, blind people that he's dealing with. These are, we know this because we've read the letter and we've seen how he talks. These are humble, uh, submissive. This is a relatively healthy church environment that he's in. And so soft people get soft treatment. You don't need a hammer to drive a nail through a marshmallow, right? You don't need that. You just need to give it a little push, right? 
Now, soft people need soft treatment. And conversely, hard people need harder treatment, right? That's why the book of Galatians feels very different than this letter. That's why Paul opens chapter one, the book of Galatians with, hey, I know some of y'all are preaching a different gospel and I just want to let you know you can go to hell. That's literally what he says. That's how he opens the book. Dear Galatians. But that's not the mood here. He's saying, look guys, if Christ has done any work among you, if you've been comforted by his love, if you're saying yes to to what his spirit's doing in the world, if there's any like drop of affection in you, which I know there is, I've seen it in you. I've seen Christ working in you. If there's any of that in you, I want you to do this. I want you to act in a way that's becoming of a, of a person for whom these attributes are true. That's what he's doing here. That's how he's setting this moment up. And so what does he want them to do? What is, it, what is his ask here? Well, look at verse two. Verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy. Paul is saying, there is nothing I could think of that would make me happier right now than than knowing you all are unified. There's nothing I could think of but that you would be of the same mind and the same love. First off, can you just imagine saying that? Remember, we talked about context. Remember the context here. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison right now, writing this letter. Like 10 verses earlier in the book of Philippians, he's talking to them as if martyrdom for him is just right around the corner. Like this is the context in which Paul is writing this letter. And he's talking about like being basically totally filled up with joy, right? Uh, Complete my joy, which means I'm right here. I just need a little push me over the edge. How do you have, what? How do you have that kind of joy in his context that you just need a little push over the edge from this crew of people? I, it's, so, it's so counter to, to how we are. We need comfort before we get joy. That's not the equation. That's not the recipe for Paul. He doesn't have that. And yet still there's joy. If I was writing this letter, let me tell you how it would be written. If there's any encouragement in Christ, complete my joy by getting me the smack out of this place. I don't know what you have to do. If you have to like smuggle in like one of those like Shawshank Redemption rock hammers and I chisel through the wall, I don't know. But I want out and that would make me ultimately happy. That's how my uh, letter goes. But that's not what he writes. That's not what he writes. Paul's got a different set of priorities. The way he finishes that sentence, complete my joy, is radically different from most of us. From most of us. The way he finishes that sentence is by thinking about them and wanting good for them. He wants something for the Philippians, not himself, for the Philippians. And them getting something is the thing, them getting something over there, not him, them getting something is the thing that brings him the most joy. Like, do you, do you feel how like countercultural this is? Like, this is not... This is not the current American ethos, right? Like Christianity gets a bad rap for being kind of bland and edgy and not like subversive or or like, let let me tell you, this, this type of thinking is more subversive than anything happening in our culture right now. Anything, it's radical. I want 
blessing and goodness poured out on you and that will maximize my joy. That's radical. That's radical. And what specifically does he want from him? Complete my joy, how? Well, he says it. By being of the same mind. He wants unity. He wants unity for them. Being of the same mind. Autos froneo. Autos, same, similar, alike. Froneo, thinking, mind, purpose, attitude. We, we are to have, he's saying, matching minds as Christians. We're to have a, a sameness of thinking. We should be unified in our attitude and our outlook and our aim in life, how we understand the world and how it works, like what we think about Jesus, who he is, the, what we think about the, the Godhead, what we believe about our purpose in life, what the meaning of the universe is. There should be an alignment here, he's saying, should be a, a, a unity of, of mind here. It matters, listen, it matters what we believe. This is why, by the way, in our membership classes, which some of you just got out of, we're gonna talk about things like doctrinal positions because it matters. It's why we take expository preaching of the Bible like we're doing up here this morning seriously because alignment on the most important things in the universe matters. We should be aligned in the truth. But that's not all that matters, right? That's not all that matters. He goes on. Having the same love, autos agape, same love, same mind and same love. He's saying you need both. Because let's be real, right? You can have alignment of thinking. You can agree on uh, truth claims with the person next to you and still want them to fall off a cliff, right? You might be sitting next to your cliff buddy right now. I don't know. I don't know. But, but I'm just saying it's possible. We know that, right? That we can affirm the same truths with people and not love them and not love them. And so the unity that Paul has in mind, it isn't one-dimensional, it isn't one-sided, it's a unity of head and of heart. We're called to believe alike and we're called to love what we believe and love the people who believe what we believe. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this company. Uh, I had to look them up uh, myself. Um, they're ca it's called Amazon. Um, they are, you, you can find it on the Google. And um, they are a, a website, apparently, that, that provides you uh, goods. And um, Amazon is a kind of a big deal. Uh, and it, the, the Amazon culture, the, the culture within their company is a really interesting one. There is such an alignment with this company on their mission statement. In fact, I was just talking to a guy who was about to be employed by them and he was talking about how, how much they drive the mission statement home. Here's the mission statement of Amazon. Our vision, quote, is to be Earth's most customer-centric company, right? When they think about what they're about, they're thinking about getting you products in such a way that you feel so taken care of and so watched out for and so treated well. We're, we wanna be Earth's most customer-centric 
company. And there is an alignment from top to bottom, from the white collar to the blue collar, they all know that mission statement. And yet, if you were to ask the individual employees about what the culture is like at Amazon, they'd be telling you a really different story. In fact, a while back, a newspaper did an expose on how Amazon treated workers at its warehouses. Listen to this. The the newspaper reported that workers, quote, were pushed harder and harder to work faster and faster until they were terminated, they quit, or they got injured. The most shocking revelation was that, I couldn't believe this, that the warehouses lacked air conditioning and that during heat waves, the company, quote, arranged to have paramedics parked in ambulances outside to revive workers who were overcome by the heat. That's the the factory workers at Amazon. How about up the ladder? Any different? The white collar workers. Listen to this. The white collar employers who who worked at headquarters, they did not have it much better. In fact, listen to this. A normal work week for a white collar employee working at headquarters of Amazon is 80 to 85 hours a week. That's average. You guys are starting to love your jobs right now, right? (laughs) That's average, under quote, a unrelenting pressure cooker environment. And listen, everyone knows the mission statement. They're all aligned when it comes to the vision of where we're headed. But the love and the care for one another is not there from the top down and 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 it's dysfunctional and it's a mess. And you can be aligned in your mission statement, but not be aligned in love. And it makes life a nightmare, doesn't it? Makes life a nightmare. John Calvin uh, wrote a commentary about this passage uh, that we're looking at in Philippians. And he said this, the beginning of love is harmony of views. Yes, but that is not sufficient. Harmony of views is not sufficient unless men's hearts are at the same time joined together in mutual affection. And this same mindedness and same love, this, um, this unity in the church, Paul is saying, that thing is the linchpin for my joy. Or if it would be helpful to think about it a different way, um, think about it like this. Unity is like an aroma that should come off of us as Christians when we gather. Like it's, it's what makes us lovely to be around. It's like a fragrance or a scent, the scent of unity. But there's no such thing as a scent without a source, right? A fragrance has to come from something. And so what is the source? The fragrance, the, the, the aroma that God desires for us as Christians is unity. But what is the, if you will, the flower that produces the scent? Well, Paul tells us right here in in verse three, the scent is unity, but the flower is humility. The scent is unity and the flower is humility. Look at verse two and three. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, one mind. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look how seamless Paul moves themes. It's it's so intuitive to Paul. He doesn't even set up that we're switching from unity to humility. For Paul to talk about unity is to talk about humility. Humility is the place out of which our Christian unity comes. 
Like-mindedness is born from humble-mindedness. You want a sense of togetherness as a, as a church? In your marriage, in your home group? Die to yourself, is what Paul's saying. You, you want a sense of unity and we're on the same team? You want a same-mindedness and same love? The, the Bible says, prefer their needs over your needs and you're on your way. I, I gotta tell you, this, this was such a hard thing for me to grasp as a college student. Uh, I, I went to Texas A&M University. I was uh, off campus the whole time. I heard that. Um, off campus the whole time in a house with uh, four other roommates at any given time. And it was wild. I loved my college experience. I, when I think back, it was a really great time. It was also crazy, just that house life. My housemates were crazy. I was a little crazy. I had a roommate uh, who for one year uh, slept entirely in the nude in my room. So um, still trying to pray through that. And, uh, but that, that was my life. And, you know, it was an interesting time for me. I was, I was really growing a lot in Christ. I was, I was learning uh, so much about him. There would be times I would just lock myself in my room and for two, three hours at a time, I would just eat the Bible and, and, and learn about God. And it was this wonderful time. And despite that, I was always so confused because as soon as I left that room and stepped into the living room where all of the guys were, it was 15 seconds before there was strife, right? And, and, and anger brewing up in me and, 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 and backbiting and, and fight. And just, I never, I didn't understand. Well, I'm putting the right stuff in my brain, God. I'm, put, I'm, put, I'm inputting the right stuff. How come it's not coming out? And there's a particular roommate that was just really difficult for me to live with and engage with. And I was talking to my mentor one time about it. it really, I was just complaining. I was complaining and whining about this guy to him. And I remember him just looking at me and saying, hey, um, are you praying for him? You praying for him? I said, Yo, yeah, yeah, I'm praying. I'm praying all the imprecatory psalms. I'm praying the uh, smash him against the rock psalm. Like that's a personal favorite of mine, that, that psalm. I'm, there's prayer, there's prayer. And he said, no, no, no. Are you praying for his good? Why don't you, Jimmy, start praying for his next test next week to go well? Why don't you pray for his relationship with his girlfriend to stay focused on Christ and be pure? Why, why don't you pray for his job that he's having some drama in right now? Begin praying for his good. Let's see what happens. I didn't like that, but I started to do it. Um, and I gotta tell you, a lot started to change. And where it started to change was in me, right? Because I... I was finding it harder and harder to wanting to punch him in the throat because I was wishing good on him and praying good for him and asking God to rain his blessings down on this guy. And it's really hard to want evil for somebody when you're praying good for them, right? And, and for me, I had to realize that it took dying to wanting good only for myself and starting to seek the good of another that was really gonna create unity. Humility births unity. It is the flower from which the fragrance comes. You see that? I, I wanna um, stop before we 
work our way through the rest of the text. And I just want to apply this in a few areas for this, uh, us this morning. Um, and I, I picked really th- three uncontroversial areas. Uh, I, I, I grabbed money, technology, and race. So, um, you know, I woke up this morning and thought, I have too many friends. Uh, I need to start weeding them out. So, um, no, I'm doing this because, because I'm assuming you didn't come here this morning to play games. I'm assuming that you didn't come to just uh, hang out with folks and drink some coffee and go get lunch afterwards. I'm assuming that you've come because you being here is you saying, I wanna be conformed into the image of Christ. I wanna look like him. And so I'm gonna gather with the saints and do this. So if, if that's true, we're gonna get into this because I want, the, I want the theology of this to come out of the clouds for a minute and get on the ground, right? If we only live up in the clouds, it's easy to agree with the pastor. It's easy to agree with the preacher. Let's put it on the ground so you can start writing some hate mail to me, okay? Let's, let's, let's get on the ground so we can actually see change happen in us. And, and so let's, let's look at these three things for a moment. Let's talk about money for a moment. Where's your money go? Where does your money go? Like, like, how do you spend? How much do you spend? What do you spend it on? Are you saving? Do you save? Where are you saving? How much are you saving? When you're thinking about retirement or the future or your kids' accounts or whatever it might be, how much money are you saying I have to put away in order for that to be okay, for, or in order for us to be secure out there in the future? What's that number look like for you? I'm... Listen, I'm not saying that retirement accounts and 401ks and Roths and all that aren't, are, are sinful or bad. I'm not saying that. There's biblical grounds for saving. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. Sometimes, listen, sometimes our commitment to our future good keeps us from being committed to our brother's present good. Sometimes our commitment to, to like, me at 60 and me at 65, like having a good life then, prevents me from blessing my brother now. And I just, I just, I wanna ask the question, what would it look like for you to, to mitigate, you know, the, the uh, expenses in the future that you're gonna have, but not e- evaporate them such that you actually might have some resources now to bless those around you. Could you imagine if we were a church culture and a church family that, that is so mindful of that, that like needs, there's just not needs in our church family. Like they're being met because we're saying no to all of my future comfort so that I could take care of your needs right now. Wouldn't that be amazing? Like if that was our church. And, and let me just say, I wanna commend you. There, I, I hear stories of that all the time in this church. I get to see that. It's a beautiful thing. But I just wanna press on that because it's easy to have a love for money instead of a love for our brother. It's much easier to love money than our brother. How about technology? You and I might not call our cell phones, uh, being on our cell phones while spending time with the people we love, conceitedness or selfish ambition, like Paul's words are. But let me submit, I think the Bible does. Paul says it really is a form of self-love and conceitedness because when we are doing this, we are making a value statement to the people around us. 
we are, we are communicating a value judgment to them. Every time you and I are tuned into our phone when we're in other people's company, we are silently saying to our spouse, to our kids, our home group, our friends, the people who you commute to work with, the folks in line with us at the Starbucks, what we're saying is this, you matter just a little bit less than what's on my screen. I really didn't want to put this point in here because I fail hard at this. I repented to Kelly this week for it. I, I find myself constantly running to my phone and, and to my f- news feed and to my Twitter page and all that. And my kids are right there. And I don't, I don't want to be 50 something and they're out the house and their memory of me is the back of an iPhone. It communicates value to them what would it look like for us to communicate value to those around us, to, to put their needs and their interests above our own and put our cell phone away? That kind of selflessness works toward unity. Last one. Let's talk about race for a moment. Um, it, it was about last week that uh, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. happened. Uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Me and a group of 11 or so of us uh, from Stonegate actually headed up in a van to uh, Memphis to go to a conference that was happening up that way um, to talk about race and culture and the church. And I just can't help but thinking that here we are in 2018. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Aside from a handful of laws changing in the 60s, things aren't much better relationally between the races, between cultures, right? And, and I hate that King is still right when he says from the grave that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. That should break our hearts, church. It should break our hearts. And... I wanna be so careful when I'm talking about this because I, I want you to hear all of this coming fr- from love and from a heart who, who is wrestling with these things and being just stabbed to the core by these ideas. But I just, if, if you can come with a posture of humility in hearing this, I'd be really grateful. I wanna to talk to my white brothers and sisters in the room for a moment. What does it look like for for this verse to mean something in the context of race. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does it mean to bear another's burden? Like Paul talks about. Like when Mike Brown or Trayvon Martin or any of these dozens of guys over the past three years who have been shot and killed, when they died, which of your black or brown brothers or sisters did you call to check in on? to say you were praying for, to ask them just how they're doing. Can I say this? I didn't. I didn't call anybody. Not for a long time. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm not talking about what you think about cops versus uh, people or are they criminals or are they not or did he have a gun or did he not? I'm just talking about the felt hurt and fear that's on the other side of that phone. Despite what the reality might be to you or to me, I'm, I'm talking about that moment. 
I had to get a call and, and, and from uh, a brother who, who communicated to me, hey, just so you know, that would actually communicate a lot of value to me before I actually ever picked up the phone or actually even considered to walk a mile in their shoes for a moment. What about when, when um, we talk about things like systemic racism? Can we just be honest? White people don't like to talk in those terms. We like the individual racism thing and we go, I'm not a racist, so things are okay. But when we hear our African-American brothers and sisters talking about systemic racism, like mass incarceration, what does your heart do? Does it put up the wall and say, no, that's not, that's your understanding of the issue wrong, right? That if you knew the numbers right, it would, it's not like that. If you just, hey, if they just stayed out of trouble, Right? Or do you move toward them and say, I, I want to I know why it is that you think that way. I, I'm not even saying that you're right and I'm wrong or you're wrong. And I'm, I'm just saying, I want to walk a mile in your shoes and get a sense of what is the argument on the other side? Like, what would it look like for you to get on Netflix tonight and, and watch the documentary 13th about the mass incarceration of young black men? What could it possibly hurt you to, to gain a perspective, a counter perspective? Even if you disagreed, would it not birth some type of empathy in you? And could that empathy not work toward a, a humble posture with your brother or sister? And would that not begin producing unity? That's what Paul's calling us to here. Unity by way of humility, by way of walking a mile in another's shoes and preferring their interests over your own. That's what we want to be about at this church. Unity is the scent. Humility is the flower. But every flower has a root. Every flower has a root. The place where the loveliness is grounded and given life. The place from which the flower grows up from and what is the root that enlivens this flower and makes the scent possible? Paul tells us in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the root. Christ is the root. Unity is the scent Humility is the flower and Christ Jesus is the root that grounds it all and grows it all and makes it bloom and produces the fragrance. Paul does not end this letter like so much religious teaching does where we just throw a bunch of good advice at you and say, hey, get working, get going. He doesn't do that. He doesn't stop there. Christianity never stops at the what, it presses into the why, because the why matters just as much as the what. We have to be a people who do good, but from what heart, from what root are we acting? And Paul's saying, our root, the Christian root, is Christ himself. Why must we maintain the same love? Why be in one accord? Why do nothing from selfish ambition? Because, he says, we know the why. 
And the why is a who. And no, this isn't a Dr. Seuss poem. But listen, if you haven't been changed by the who, if you haven't been changed by Jesus Christ, listen, if you haven't seen him and savored him and marveled at the fact that this one who had all the status and rights in the universe laid it aside and came after you and died for his people, if you haven't marveled and your jaw dropped at that and trusted in that and cast your life upon him, if you haven't done that, let me tell you, unity will be completely impossible for you because the root of the flower is Christ. It's Christ. If you start with the doing, you get none of it. If you start with the knowing, you get all of it. If you start with the treasuring, the being baffled, well, why would, why? I, I don't deserve what you have to offer, God, and yet you, you pursue me? Like, you, you're God, and you dwell with the lowly? Do you know what getting that from the heart does when God changes your heart to, to marvel at that? It produces in you a desire to wanna be like your savior. You become the person who now wants to get low, put another first, die to yourself, die to your preferences. That's what God's after in us. And that's why Paul ends this little moment by talking about Jesus and not just about do more stuff. It's about Jesus always, and that produces the doing. One of my favorite um, books in the world is a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. I highly recommend it to you. And there's a quote in there that is him talking about unity. And I just want you to meditate on what he has to say here. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. God wants to tune our hearts to each other by tuning our hearts to him. And when you get that, you get humility. And when you get humility among the body, you get unity. And don't we want unity? Don't we want this as a church family? Like some of you guys are just struggling with this right now. Struggling with this. When you, maybe you're in a marriage and you're just hanging on by a thread and, and, and you want unity between you and your spouse, but you're stubbornly refusing to move an inch in their direction and toward their interests. And, and God is saying something to you in this text. He's saying you have a unity problem because you have a humility problem. And you have a humility problem because you have a Jesus-enjoying problem. It starts at the root before it gets to the rose. 
And so maybe for you, repentance this morning is you're thinking about, I do want, I want a better relationship. I want to be able to die to myself. Where it begins for you is not just repenting of your actions, but your treasuring. Go down to the root and repent, Paul tells us. He tells us, start there and and realize that your hard-heartedness in your marriage is probably a product of you not seeing Jesus as satisfying, not seeing what he's done for you as the lovely thing that it is, the marvelous thing that it is. And so the prayer this morning as we worship is, God, change my heart. Make me, make me see the cross and be baffled from the heart by it. Change me, as, as I, even as I sing today, would you change my heart, soften me so that I can serve my spouse and not just look for stuff from them. And maybe for you, just the general unity thing is difficult. Like you think about the Stonegate context and getting plugged in or, or home groups and you just haven't been able to settle in one and you actually know more about the 29 Stonegate home groups than Tony Robinson, our home groups director does because you've been to all of them, right? And you know them, right? And every time you get in one, it's just a little bit of time before you're like, ah, this just isn't for us. I just, we, you know, and we say things like we didn't click or it didn't feel right. Or, I don't think they get me or I just need somebody who's more in my context or whatever it is. Let me, let me just tell you lovingly that it's possible that there are times when you need to move on from a home group. I'm not saying there's not, but I just want to say this with love. Likely it's probably just you. You have a unity issue because you have a humility issue, not willing to prefer another's needs as greater than your own. And you might have a humility issue because you have a Jesus treasuring issue. So what does it look like to repent? And say, I actually, I wanna be a part of, of this body here and I, and, and I hear Paul saying it, it means me dying to myself and into just thinking about my needs. But really below that, it is treasure Jesus. See what he did for you is, is, is the highest value and let that news change you. Christianity is not just about good advice. It's about good news, fixing our eyes, turning our eyes on Jesus just like that hem says, looking full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. All of my infighting and, and me prioritizing and war within the church, all of that grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's how he's gonna change us this morning. Let's pray. This is a great time as your heads are bowed to just ask God to show you where you need to repent, where maybe your heart's been hard in this, where you haven't been working toward unity. And to ask him for grace to change. We need his help to change. You and I will not change on our own. The spirit of God must do it. So ask him to help you humbly.
as you're praying and as we're about to start worshiping even here in a minute, there is a table uh, over in the corner of the room uh, where we just have prayer volunteers there. And if you're wanting somebody else to, to pray over you and to ask for freedom in areas of your life, if you're wanting grace, that type of grace that God offers through his people praying, please, they would be just so eager to pray for you. Take advantage of that. Be bold and go as we, as we start worship here in a little bit. Lord, we, we wanna be a people at Stonegate that there's a fragrance about us. That when folks are around us, they, they see and they smell that unity. That there is a, a oneness, a sameness of, of mind and of heart here. And God, we can't do it unless you do it. So God, give us a big view of Jesus as we worship. Help us marvel at our savior. Help us remember that you provide the victory in this, that the battle is, is won for our unity in Christ. We just need to trust him. Trust that it's one in him. God, would you, would you give us faith to believe you, to love you and to love our brother? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.